What if I told you that you have the power to make a profound impact in your community? Welcome to Voice to Change podcast by Jane Doe No More. We're glad you're here. I'm Jocelyn Mementa, and our podcasts feature powerful stories from survivors of sexual crimes, as well as specialists in the field of trauma and healing. Our goal is to provide hope, resources, and the ability for you to play a role in creating positive, meaningful change for a safer world. Thanks for listening. One of Jane Doe No More's impactful programs is the Safe Student Initiative, where education is provided for students from middle school to college. Many topics are discussed, such as bystander intervention, digital danger, and rape culture. In this podcast, we will talk more about the program and the topic of consent. Joining me is Tara Flynn, who will tell us more about this program and the topic that we want to talk about, which is consent. But before we share your personal story, Tara, let's talk about your role with Jane Doe No More. Yes, thank you for having me, Jocelyn. I am a Survivor Speak member with Jane Doe No More, and I also sit on the advisory committee. I have been volunteering at fundraising events and hosting third parties, but my biggest most impactful role I play is educating children as part of our Safe Student Initiative. Why is that so important to you? Why is talking to students an important role for you? Going into the schools and talking with the students is important to me because when I look into their eyes, I can see a younger version of myself. And if only someone had come into my school and shared this critical information with me, then maybe my story may have turned out differently. Tell us what you mean by that. Sure. I have a love for children. I have since I was a little girl. I was the first out of my friend group as a preteen to go and get my babysitter's certificate. And I was also raised by a single mom. So I spent a lot of my afternoons at the local YMCA where she would come pick us up from. When I was 12, a couple came in asking for a babysitter at their home for a couple hours in the afternoons to take care of their toddler and infant sons. And I begged and I pleaded with my mom. I said, please, please, I'll do my schoolwork. I'll keep up my grades. Just please let me leave the YMCA and go outside. Of and course, she the said house. yes, right? Yeah, after a little convincing, you know. <laughs> and I was a good student, so she didn't have much to hold against me. So she met with the children's mom. And after having a meeting with her, she decided that it was okay for me to do. And I would have no idea how large of an impact those children or that job would have on me. So what happened in this role as the babysitter for this family? What started a couple afternoons a week turned into five days a week and even weekends when the parents would go away. So they became like my family. I trusted them and I felt really mature and responsible for a 13-year-old who was left with three children. I was just going to ask you, refresh my memory here. How old were you when you were on this job? I I was 13 and I was taking care of a five, a three and an infant by myself. And so I felt like I was an adult and, and could handle anything. I really did. So when did things turn? So I I hadn't noticed Throughout the first year or two, the father's behavior started changing towards me, and I was oblivious to it. I thought it was nothing more than like he said, he was my big brother. 
And then it all changed one night just before my 15th birthday. I was sleeping with his children around me on the living room floor. And that was the first night he sexually assaulted me. I awoke to a heavy feeling on my chest and him telling me that he was just showing me what the first time would feel like. I said no, but his hand covered my mouth. My mind ran away in terror as he finished the assault. I was sure not to wake his sons to the terror I was enduring. Immediately, shame, guilt, fear took over. Had I done something to make him think I wanted this? Mm -hmm. That was what's going on in my head. His wife was my friend and I didn't want it. But still, I had believed what he said. He said it was just a one-time thing and that somehow it was something that I led him to think I wanted. So, But it wasn't just the one time. No. At that time, I believed him that it would be. So I did. I started doing things like having my mom come earlier to pick me up so that there was less time that he could be alone with me and there was less opportunity. And I started getting comfortable in that habit and routine and let my guard down just for him to show me that he it wasn't just a one-time thing. He assaulted me again. And that time, one of the children walked in on it. And I learned then that it was just easier not to fight it, that I just stayed safer if I didn't fight it. It was just something I would have to deal with to be in those children's life. And I tolerated and I didn't tell anybody and I kept the secret. And I finally grew the courage a couple months later to tell a friend what was happening to me and they convinced me to stop babysitting, thankfully. I told the children's mom and my mom that the high school high school work, I was a freshman, it was becoming too much. I, I made up the story that it was just too much to work and keep my grades up. So I just went on with my life until one night, a couple months later, the wife called me and said she had a question for me. I needed to be completely honest. She said, had her husband ever done anything sexually to me? And immediately I panicked. I, I didn't know how she could have known what he did to me. I, I, I was very confused. Thankfully, the same friend that had convinced me to stop babysitting was with me that night when she called and said, Tara, you need to be honest. You need to put an end to this. It was not your fault. It was the first person that had said that to me. And I let the wife know what happened and that she then let me know that he had assaulted two of the babysitters after me. So we went through the court process. He he did very minimal amount of time and was ordered to be on the sex offender registry for life. You know, I went from blaming this dirty secret I had on myself to being mad at myself for not speaking up as it may have prevented what had happened to the girls after me. There was a lot going on and... But Tara, you were only at that point 15 years mm -hmm. old. Correct. That's a lot to have to deal with at that age. Right. And I think because of the stigma out there and everything, this was also in early 2000s. It was it was a different world before Me Too and all those other things. So it it wasn't talked about like it was now, especially somebody I know. I've heard of stranger danger. I was taught that growing up. Somebody may grab you into a field and rape you and you, you, hopefully you live, but you might not. But nobody ever told me that somebody I knew could convince me to do something wrong to me and that I would believe them that it was my fault. <laughs> How did your mom respond to the story when you shared it with her? I still hadn't shared it with her after I told the wife. The detective that the wife spoke to ended up calling my mom and informing her so she pulled me aside one afternoon and just asked me if it was true. And I said, yes. And she said, okay, we'll go down to the police station. And the issue was my mom 
just like me, was friends with the wife. So I think the lack of knowledge, my mom had asked the wrong questions to me at the moment. Like, was it consensual? How many times did it happen? Things, he was more than double my age and I was a minor. There's no way I could have consented. So there were questions that pushed me into, okay, like he said, nobody's going to believe me that I didn't want this. I only told when I went to the police station about the first time because I really only believed that was the only true rape because every other time I went back after that, I thought was my fault for going back. So he was only charged for that one. So you were victimized again mm-hmm. during the process. Right. And and that that's why it's so important to me when we go into the schools. If I had somebody saying, we will believe you, you're not alone. Other people have experienced these horrible things. It might not have stopped the first time, but every time after that, I would have known that I could get out of the situation, that there is hope and, and change is possible. I was stuck in that situation and I had no tools on how to get out or how to even say what was happening to me. Before we talk about the consent, the topic of consent in the Safe Student Initiative program, let's talk about how, when you share your story with these students, how do they respond? Believe it or not, they barely look at their phones, unlike we hear from their teachers, is is rare for them in auditorium situations or when there's presentations. We have all eyes glued on us most times. That's what the wonderful part of our program is, is all of us survivors are normal people. And again, when I was a child and heard about these things, I thought it only happened to certain type of people. You have this idea in your head of, same with who the perpetrators are, who the victims are. And we go out and show them that the survivors look like all of us. We are all of us. And so them getting down or us getting down on their level and and using their age appropriate language and having conversations that probably are uncomfortable for the adults around them, understandably. What kind of questions do they ask you? Um, They ask a lot about our stories and what to do if their friend confides in them. We get that a lot. It's very difficult. And I, we tell them, even people who are confided in should go talk to somebody. That's a lot to hear, to be told a story like that. So, But we also tell them that if their friend confides in them, believe them. People don't make this up. They need to be believed in that moment. And we tell survivors or, or victims, whatever they prefer to be called, to keep telling somebody until they're believed because there are people out there that will believe them. Let's talk about the topic of consent. You shared a little bit about what that is. What is the definition of consent? Consent is permission for something to happen. It's not a one-time thing either. It's a process which must be asked for every step of the way. It must be made by people who are capable of making informed decisions and who are not intoxicated or incapacitated. Okay, you just shared what consent is. Right, that's a heavy definition. That certainly is. So what is not consent? So everything but yes. If, if it's not yes, we need to discuss it because there are a lot of things that are explicitly no that still aren't yes. So that's why we go into the schools and explain to them that things that aren't consent is pushing away, making excuses. That's not consent. If somebody's crying, that's not consent. There are other ways besides no. We can't assume that just because somebody the lack of a no is not a yes. So that's a big one for for people to realize. Do you give them examples as to how to say no? What is a no? Right. And how to how to hear a no. 
it's very difficult, but we tell them that if you're not comfortable doing something, you don't have to do it. No matter how much somebody pressures you or tries to convince you or calls you whatever because you won't, it, it's your body and you have the right to consent to what you would like done to it. And the lack of that is assault. Do you share what the initial feelings were for you when doing that first assault? You knew intuitively this was not right. Right. Yeah. And it's important because I think looking back, hindsight is always different. In the moment, I thought it was all my fault. <laughs> so I can look back and absolutely tell you it was not right what was happening that that time. But in the moment, I blame myself. So what I tell kids is that these perpetrators are master manipulators. They will find a way to make you believe that and what you're doing is your fault and what they're doing to you is your fault. What it, How you walk, the way you dress, anything, none of that determines whether you consent to somebody touching your body. And they will use all of those things to convince you or, you know, threats of taking things away or not letting you see them or other people. His his thing was his sons. He knew he could use that. So that became the tool where, oh, you don't want to say anything, then you won't see my sons. And he knew that that was what kept me there. Why is it so important in a relationship to have that mutual respect? Because that is so needed right. in a relationship. What's the difference for people who may not understand the difference between mutual respect and consent? I, I think mutual respect is such a pillar in relationships. It not only promotes happiness, but it helps your self-esteem it, and your overall emotional satisfaction is up with mutual respect. There, There's trust, but consent in relationships is important too. And like I mentioned before, it shouldn't be implied or assumed, meaning somebody may consent one day. It doesn't mean they consent the next. And that's important. They may consent to, like we say to the kids, one base and not the next base. Consent needs to be asked for every step. And something as easy as, is this okay? Is this okay? And if you're not comfortable asking each step, it's probably not something you should be doing. Let's talk about body language mm-hmm. and nonverbal cues. So nonverbal cues that are Nose, I would say pushing away, mm-hmm. crying, pretending to be asleep. If somebody's sleeping, they're not consenting. And yes, is it's an obvious yes. The, the good thing about consent is it's very clear if you have it or not. There's no confusion. It's either a yes or there's a question. Do I have consent? But when you're so young, like I know. you were, that is such a difficult concept to really and it's uncomfortable. understand. But so is sex. Correct. And so like we tell them, if you guys want to be doing this, you need to be asking uncomfortable questions. Sex is a big deal. It's, it's something you need to be responsible with too. As, as you know, growing up, it needs to be asked for everybody in a relationship, out of relationship, consent needs to be there. What is a parent's role in this? I think educating and, and listening. I think understandably as parents, we want to teach a lot. And as we know, as the generations go on, there's new things out there every day. We should be listening to what the kids have going on, what what they're talking about, what's the most important thing to them, because they know. And like 
Like what happens when we go into the schools, we ask them what's going on around here. And they tell us everything more than some of the teachers even knew. So the kids know what's going on in the schools. They know what their biggest issues are. It's just listening and and then not trying to fix all their problems, just like in regular relationships. We're here to listen. You go to middle schools, right? Correct. Middle, middle schools yeah. and high schools. Correct. How do you present the topic to somebody who's in middle school versus somebody in high school? It's a big difference because middle schoolers, they still have that awkward, embarrassing, don't say the S word. So we definitely change it up. We separate boys and girls in middle the middle school ages. We separate them. For, we bring their parents in too and have conversations with their parents in a separate room. And then we bring them back together and have a group conversation. So it's very different. We, we understand that middle schoolers, in order to feel any level of comfortability in this subject, we couldn't do it like we do with the high schoolers where they're in a big auditorium and get that feedback that high schoolers are comfortable standing up and sharing where middle schoolers are very shy still. And if we want them to truly hear and have conversations with us about it, we need those smaller, crucial, private moments. What are some of those private conversations? Can you share? Yeah, uh, lots of questions. And also we've had many students come disclose to us that they've been assaulted, that their mom or that one of their family members has been assaulted. But Lots of lots of them the first time they'll come to us. So we, of course, guide them to their counselors in the schools. We always work with the counselors and that department. And they are normally really great with coming in and offering any kind of assistance that the students need when we're there. Because there are triggering subjects that if somebody is being abused and in silence, what we're talking about can stir things up. So we do see that and we're prepared. That's got to be tough, though. It is. Because it also triggers your experience. Right. Right. But I can't change what already happened to me. I can change what hasn't happened to kids in the future. And so if though it is hard, I tell people it's never easier going up in front of a group of people and sharing such raw details of your life, but it's worth it because of those kids that come up and share for the first time their secret that was in the dark. So all for that, it's worth it. It's worth the uncomfortability. The little bit I have to go through is worth it. So when you're standing there sharing your story and all the other survivors sharing their story, what is it that you want the students to take home with them? What's the message? Mainly what, what we talk about, consent and, and to ask questions. Be curious. Go online on our website and look some things up. There may be a lot you don't know, and it's embarrassing sometimes to say, I don't know something. So look it up. There, Google there's many tools at our fingertips nowadays to to find these things out. And in 2023, nobody should not know the definition of consent. <laughs> but the kids are really good. And, and the teachers, we've heard feedback that they really have conversations about this after. Because it, again, it's it it's we're talking about consent in the sexual nature, but consent starts way before that. Consent is, can I hold your hand? Can't, I tell them all in the high school, you you know how many times you go into a high school and see them just throwing their arms around people in the hallway? You don't have to ask every time if you're friends with that person and you know you're at that level where you can put your arm on them. But do you have consent to throw your arm on every person in the hallway you put your arm on? And it makes them think like, wow, the basics, but would I want 
people I don't want their arm on me just coming up and thinking they can do that. And so it gets the gears spinning and it really does break it down to the basics. It's not just sexual. Consent happens everywhere. That's right, because it really depends on who that person is. Sometimes, right. Right. even though you know that person, right. it feels uncomfortable right. that exactly. that person even embraced you. Exactly. And and that it helps the kids kind of get the basics of it. Knowing those basics can help you when you're in those uncomfortable situations. And in the end, like we tell them, consent protects you. This is saying that you've done your job to make sure that what you're doing is right. And And in the end... That is how you have a healthy relationship. That is how you have consent. Wow. I did want to ask you, how do you define a sexual assault? How do you share that with the students? So basically, just just as simple as sex without consent is sexual assault. If there is no consent, if there's not a clear yes, then that person can can file charges and feel like they were violated because they did not consent to what was happening. So automatic sex without consent is assault. When you say that, though, you're, you're also referring to if somebody doesn't feel comfortable that they were touched in any way. Right, right. exactly. And, and that's a good point to bring up because it's not just intercourse. Correct. It is many levels of sexual assault in the law that, I mean, people can be charged for any level. Touching somebody else's body in any sexual way can be a form of sexual assault without your consent in any form. Exactly. I just wondered how you explained that to kids right. who are in middle right. school. No, and it's there's safe touch and not safe touch starts when they're way younger. But as you get older, there are there are areas that we especially don't touch more than not throwing your arm around somebody in a hallway. There are areas that are sexual on the body that, especially without consent, should not be touched. And that is sexual assault if it, if they are. What would you like to say to our audience regarding what you're doing for Jane Doe No More? I, I think I, I'd like to also just add in that a big thing we tell the students is they need to practice not only saying no, but hearing no, because it is very difficult when you're in the moment and you m- may have heard yes in the beginning and then it changed to no, but that's okay too. And they need to also respect it then. And that's a big one. It's okay to be stopped and told no don't take it personal. It might have nothing to do with you, but you still need to listen to them. You said, say it, practice it. What do you mean by that? Practice with their friends. They can practice saying no, practice saying yes, what they want, what they don't want. Actually come up with something to say. Yes. Yeah. Be prepared. Exactly. Well, and the biggest thing is be prepared to hear no. So if they're, you know, wanting to have relations with somebody, it's okay for the other person to say no. That's the main point. Okay. So I guess if you're feeling that somebody is trying to... Right. Respect that. Respect that. You have to say no. Right. No. Practice that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think there's lots of times where we don't feel confident enough in the moment to say it and to stand up for ourselves when we don't want something. And sometimes we act okay with something that we're really not. So in those moments, practicing ahead of time, no, I'm not comfortable with that. No, it can get you, it's almost like working out before you know you, you go for a boxing match. It'll get you to the point where you're so prepared in the moment to say it. But we all need to be prepared is what you're really saying. It can just happen at any time. And Right. And if you're not prepared, you generally keep those feelings or that 
when you want to say no hidden, it's it's you don't say it out loud. Right. Well, and like I said, there can be so many other factors that they're using to convince you why you don't really want to say no. But if you practice ahead of time and know that your body is your right to say no to. I don't know that I knew that I could say no to an adult. I was told respect your adults. If a, if a family member wanted a hug or a kiss goodbye, we had to do it. Like it was just part of it. So it starts with the basic where you have to you have to be willing to receive consent and give consent for a lot of things. Tara, you also speak to college students. What do you share with them and how do you get that point across? We do. We explain, especially because these are 18, just coming out of high, 18 year olds that are just coming out of high school. We explain to them the impact drinking has on consent, that when you're drinking, people cannot consent. And also to be aware as they're going into college that they may not know their levels. You know, they might not know their tolerance levels for drinking. So it's, it's not worth it. If there's any sex involved, drinking should not be involved. Because when when somebody's under the influence of alcohol, they can't consent. And that's the biggest thing college students don't really understand. They think if they're both saying yes and under the influence that it's okay, but the next day when the other person is of right mind, they have the right to to say, wait a minute, I was incapacitated. So it's not worth it. We tell them, make sure that that you understand that if somebody's had drugs or alcohol in their system, they're not able-bodied to consent and make informed decisions. What can they do to prevent that from happening to them? We let them know to have a body system. If they go to a party together, leave with that friend, no matter what they're saying, no matter what they're trying to convince you to leave with somebody else, make sure that you have a pact that no matter how mad you'll get at each other, you leave together and check up on your friends. And if if you see something going on at parties, say something because maybe the other person that came that you're seeing something happening to didn't bring a buddy. So just because you and your buddy are okay, also keep an eye out because it's on all of us to make sure where our communities are safe. And I think especially when they're in environments where there's alcohol, they should stick together. How did you overcome what you experienced? I think I overcome is a is a big word. I'd like to think I overcame, but it's really something you'll live with every day. I get through it by sharing and making an impact on children out there and also the survivors with Jane Dona Moore are my family and and I have a good group of friends and family that are close to me that are great support systems. So between that and my Jane Dona Moore family, it really makes a difference in healing, having the right support system around you. Tara Flynn, thanks so much for joining us. It's never easy to share a story like yours, but yours has such a strong message. Thank you. Thank you for choosing to listen to the Voice to Change podcast by Jane Doe No More. We would love for you to share this episode with your friends. You can find more resources and learn about our programs at janedonomore.org. Follow us on social media. We look forward to staying connected.